Welcome to Dental Dilemmas, brought to you by the ADA Council on Ethics, Bylaws, and Judicial Affairs. I'm your host, James Purvis. Today, using the ADA's Code of Ethics and Professional Conduct, we will analyze one of the Council's most popular ethical moments. Today's question is posed by Dr. Paul Palo in a previously published article from August of 2023. Agnes is a patient of many years who has a chief symptom of lost partial dentures. She's 85 years old, and I have noticed that she has become confused recently and at times disoriented. She asked that I replace her partials with permanent bridges so that she would not lose them. Her oral hygiene is marginal at best, and the supporting teeth are questionable as bridge abutments. I feel uncomfortable proposing such extensive and potentially expensive treatment to her if she's becoming mentally unsound. When I ask whether there is a friend or family member who could help her with this decision, she quickly dismisses this and insists that she is solely responsible for her care. What are my ethical obligations of following through with her wishes? So today, we're mighty thankful to have Dr. Paul Palo with us, the author of This Ethical Moment. Dr. Palo, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. Yes, sir. It's a pleasure. Well, briefly, if you would, uh, just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you practice, how you practice. Well, I am a 1990 graduate of the University of Florida College of Dentistry. And following graduation, I went back to my hometown of Winter Haven, Florida, and practiced with my father, general dentistry. I've been married for 37 years to my wonderful wife, Bo, and I've got two adult daughters, age 30 and 23. I've served in various capacities with my state and local dental societies, culminating with nine years as trustee of the Florida Dental Association. I uh, currently serve on the Council of Ethics, Bylaws, and Judicial Affairs for the ADA, as well as I'm a delegate to the ADA House from the 17th District. I am a fellow of the Academy of General Dentistry, the American Academy of Dentistry, the International College of Dentistry, and the Pierre Fouchard Academy. Well, we certainly appreciate you being with us. Now, this ethical moment, this topic, it, it really closely involves the relationships between the medical and the dental provider communities. How do you feel like the two communities operate together and certainly how do they intertwine when it comes to an issue like this? Well, to be frank, James, currently not well. Depending on where you practice and the relationships you've developed with your medical communities through things such as referrals, hospital privileges, and social interactions, you may deal better with physicians. However, in general, I feel the medical community doesn't really see the dentist as an equal in providing overall health care to our patients. Now, this is slowly beginning to change as more and more evidence comes to light about the integral role that oral health plays in other systemic health issues. We as dentists have known for some time that the impact of uncontrolled inflammation and infection in the oral cavity has on cardiac health, diabetes, and orthopedic joint replacement. The tide is shifting, and we see more and more physicians requiring dental exams and treatment prior to major surgical intervention. So the future does look bright. How do you feel like moving forward, these two communities can work together for improved comprehensive care of patients? And you know, moreover, even within your own community, how do, how do you go about establishing rapport with the medical community? Well, in a nutshell, James, communication. 
Improved communication is the key to understanding where the patient stands in their healthcare journey. The key phrase here in your question is healthcare provider. Over the last 10 to 15 years, I've seen a monumental shift in medical healthcare. You know, it used to be that the patient would see their physician, and the physician was the gatekeeper, if you will, to their care. In that model, it was imperative that you spoke with the physician for patient information. Today, due to many factors we don't really have time to get into, the physicians are grossly overworked, and they just don't seem to have time to speak with a dentist. The upside here is that much of the work and record keeping is being delegated now to physician's assistants and advanced nurse practitioners. And I found these resources very approachable and willing to consult on the patient's behalf. So, in summary, in many situations, communication has improved with the addition of these providers. In your ethical moment, you mentioned that sometimes a cognitive impairment may be acutely related to pharmacologic effects of different drugs or combinations thereof. And do do you feel like in a situation like this, it might be important to include a pharmacy consult to determine all the current medications for a patient? Great question, James. Absolutely. Including the pharmacy is a key piece of the patient's healthcare picture. Now, most of my elderly patients now provide me with a fairly comprehensive list of their current medications. This is a great help, but it's not foolproof. I have to say one of the biggest benefits of the war on opioid addiction is the centralization of the prescribing records the pharmacies are now required to use. In this area, the pharmacies are years ahead of us as prescribers. They have immediate access to all of the patient's prescriptions and knowledge of interactions that many dentists just don't possess. So in short, the pharmacies are a great and valuable resource. Getting into the issue of patient autonomy, we talk about informed consent, your ethical moment that dives into that beautifully. In the medical community, there exists a medical durable power of attorney. Will dentists now be obligated to obtain these forms for patients with altered mental status or potentially in the future? Wow, that's a tough one. I mean, I certainly don't have a crystal ball. If I did, I'd probably be playing the Powerball and not sitting here today. <laughs> uh, this question is probably better answered by a healthcare attorney with expertise in the area, and I can only speak on my professional experiences. Luckily, in my practice, the vast majority of patients that I see with various states of dementia are accompanied by a spouse, a family member, or caregiver. Treatment decisions tend to go through both the patient and the caregiver. Almost always, the caregiver will inform us of the patient's mental status and ask to be included in treatment decisions. As long as both parties have agreed to my HIPAA guidelines, I generally don't take it any further. As far as asking for documentation for durable power of attorney, I generally don't feel the need to press this issue with a spouse or children. Will the law require this in the future? Well, your guess is as good as mine. (laughs) In your ethical moment, you mentioned that many cognitive impairments are indeed reversible with a change of medication or other health considerations. Uh, In a case like that, do you you feel like dental treatment ought to be postponed until the patient receives medical clearance? And specifically in this instance, should a caregiver be asked to advise until this might resolve? Or what would happen if emergent dental care might be necessary? This speaks directly to my ethical moment in last month's JADA. So let's break it down, shall we? If a patient comes in with altered mental status, we as dentists have no way to assess what's causing the alterations. It could be dementia or Alzheimer's, or it could be a transitory alteration caused by things such as diet insufficiency or pharmacological side effects. The only way to be certain is to consult with both the caregiver, if one is available, and the patient's medical care provider. 
This follows the ethical principle in our ADA code of ethics of non-maleficence or do no harm. If you throw in that there's emergent care issue, then our principle of beneficence or do good comes into play. Certainly, in this instance, removing the cause of the problem is of most importance. It could be as simple as smoothing a sharp broken tooth or adjusting an ill-fitting partial clasp. If you delay this treatment, it would be ethically and morally wrong. However, if you go deeper into definitive treatment, that should require a consultation with the caregiver and healthcare provider to gain a comprehensive diagnosis on the patient's mental health status in order to move forward. You mentioned bringing a family member or a caregiver to the appointment, and just like you in my private practice, this happens all the time. And so long as the parties adhere to my HIPAA guidelines, I have no problem with this. In many ways, I find it helpful. Now, how would you handle a situation if a patient discloses that they don't have anybody to serve in this capacity? Now we're getting the meat of the issue, James. In my Ethical Moment article, Agnes states emphatically that she is solely responsible for her treatment decisions. This can really complicate our decisions if we don't have a strong moral compass and ethical base. Certainly, we must rely on our ADA Code of Ethical Principles. On one hand, we're bound to honor her autonomy, which is her ability to guide her treatment choices. It can be presumed that this covers patients with sound mental capacities, not those with altered mental statuses. On the other hand, we deal with non-maleficence or do no harm. In this instance, to enter into treatment with Agnes without a thorough understanding of her mental capacity, we're certainly doing her harm, no matter what our intentions. So this leads us to a difficult conversation. These are not easy by definition, but often the most valuable. I would discuss my trepidations on moving forward with the treatment and ask her politely, but firmly, to speak with her physician. I would then reschedule Agnes for further consultation when I have a mental status diagnosis in hand. You mentioned in your ethical moment that when you bring this up to Agnes, that she quickly dismisses the idea that perhaps she might not be able to be responsible for her care. She insists that she's solely responsible for her care. How do you handle the situation when the patient feels affronted like that by asking if there's anyone who can assist in making these decisions? You know, James, when I wrote this ethical moment, Agnes was a composite of several encounters that I have experienced. Luckily, in almost every case, it came down to a heartfelt concern for their safety and well-being, and we were able to find someone in the family to consult with. Only once did this not work out. This particular patient became very upset and left the practice. I assume they received care elsewhere and could only hope it was with compassion and understanding as to their condition, not just for profit. In the end, we as ethical dentists have to sleep at night with the knowledge that we did everything we could to treat each patient fairly and in their best interest, not ours. If we follow this guidepost, we seldom have any regrets. If the patient were to ask their dental provider, say Agnes were to ask you to make the decisions for her care because she might be unable, what are the implications? What are the responsibilities for the provider in this case? Well, we do this every week with patients with normal mental capacities, don't we? Take the patients you've treatment planned for a crown replacement due to recurrent decay. Once you get the crown off, the decay extends into the biologic width and the pulp is necrotic. So what do we do? We consult the patient and help guide them through treatment options. Whether you believe in a root canal and crown lengthening is the best long-term choice versus extraction and implant placement, you do your best to educate the patient and help them decide. The difference here is, does our patient have the ability to decide on their own? 
Autonomy is important, but so is veracity or honesty. So being honest that you're uncomfortable making these decisions on their behalf is okay. Ask for their help in gaining opinions with a family member or caregiver first and go that route. And then ethically, only then can informed consent be attained, in my opinion. And the old adage of document, document, document is always true. Well, Dr. Palo, I can't thank you enough for helping us go through this ethical moment together. In general, what does being an ethical dentist mean to you? And how do you apply the ADA code to your everyday practice? Well, being an ethical dentist doesn't mean you're the best or the brightest. It just means you work hard at improvement for the sake of your patients, always keeping their best interests foremost, not yours. As far as applying the code in everyday practice, you know, I never gave the code much more than a cursory read and just always assumed everybody practiced with this code. Not until I became a fellow of the American College of Dentists and was appointed to the Council on Ethics, Bylaws, and Judicial Affairs did I truly begin to understand the finer points and often gray areas in professional decision-making. I think now the code is always running in the background of my brain, kind of like a computer's antivirus software. You don't realize it's there until you need it, but it's always running. I serve on the ADA New Dentist Committee, and I feel incredibly thankful and privileged and humbled to be able to serve with CBJA as a liaison in that capacity. And so I've got to ask, what advice would you give a recently graduated new dentist regarding practicing ethically and to the ADA code? You know, I've been fortunate to be able to work with quite a few dental school classes over the years, helping teach ethics. I generally start my conversation with the D3 or D4 students by saying, I'm not here to teach you to be ethical. That was the job of your parents or family when you were very little. I'm here to help focus your decision making. And I'm always amazed with the caliber of students and new dentists out there and where they tend to find their strengths in ethics. My only advice is that as a young dentist, be very aware of outside influences that put pressure on you financially. Student loan debt, urge to start living like a professional, employment situations can be overwhelming. So join your local dental society and join the tripartite and find a mentor or a friend, someone that can give you sage advice. It's outstanding, outstanding advice. Dr. Palo, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share about this article? Well, it was certainly a joy to write. And as I said, it was a composite of many situations that I've encountered over my 34 years of practice. And, and I just really enjoyed doing it and got a lot out of it. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Palo, for being with us. We are Honored to have you here. Thank you for your service to Sebja, to the ADA as a whole, and for uh, spending time with us today. Thank you, James. A final note about the episode. Please see the show notes for a link to the original article and stay tuned for future episodes. At the close of the episode, continue listening to hear the sections of the ADA's Principles of Ethics and Code of Professional Conduct pertinent to the original Ethical Moment article. This article discusses two sections of the ADA's Principles of Ethics and Code of Professional Conduct. These sections are as follows. First, patient autonomy. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to treat the patient according to the patient's desires, within the bounds of accepted treatment, and to protect the patient's confidentiality. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include involving patients in treatment decisions in a meaningful way, 
with due consideration being given to the patient's needs, desires, and abilities, and safeguarding the patient's privacy. And secondly, the principle of non-maleficence. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to protect the patient from harm. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include keeping knowledge and skills current, knowing one's own limitations, and when to refer to a specialist or other professional, and knowing when and under what circumstances delegation of patient care to auxiliaries is appropriate. Remember to keep ethics at the forefront of your daily practice and stay tuned as Siebja decodes dental dilemmas. <laughs>